week of June 26th, 2022. This is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 587, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And in Oakland, California, I'm Michael Giltz. Do I even want to know why you're in Oakland, California? I know I know you're a Yankees fan. Maybe they're playing the Oakland A's. I am helping Billy Joe Armstrong of Green Day pack up. I actually don't know where he lives, but he was born in Oakland, and I know he's a California boy, I believe. But he said, I'm enough with the U.S. I'm moving to England. And so he wants to you move to the U.K. You know who said UK. that, by the way? You know who, who said that? Um, uh, Hold on. It just came in. Hold on. Wait. Yep. Uh, Almost everyone in the United States wants to move out after last week. <laughs> I mean, right, I, the so. number of people... That, that have said to me, like, I've actually gotten um, a couple of questions because I was in Barcelona in Europe. So on Thursday, I was getting these questions. How many guns do you own? <laughs> you own a lot of guns? Uh, by the time I landed on Friday after, Friday evening, the number of texts, uh, uh, you know, basically saying, look, I'm really sorry. I'm, I'm so my I send my condolences. I was like, what the heck? Like, what happened? And then, of course, I realized, oh, oh, lots happened. Supreme Court. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Well, anyway, there's good reasons to move to the UK, and that's to celebrate Kate Bush. Her song, Running Up That Hill, did even more record-breaking while you were in Europe for Cine Europe. We'll get to that in a minute. But Running Up That Hill, of course, was a big hit here in the US, You know, breaking into the top five. Now it's hit number one in the UK. She becomes the oldest woman to ever hit number one, at 63 years old, just a kid as far as I'm concerned. She now has the longest gap between a song debuting on the chart and reaching number one. It took her 37 years. It was a big hit back when it came out in the 80s, but it only went into the top five. Now it's hit number one. That means she breaks a record set by Wham, who took a really long time for last Christmas to hit number one. And finally, she has the longest gap between number one singles. Her debut single, Wuthering Heights, hit number one in 1978, and now she has her second number one single with Running Up That Hill in 2022. That's very cool. And you know what? These stats, they are a tribute to Joel Whitburn, a chart guru who has died last week. Uh, he did all these Billboard books, and we'll be talking about him in our obituary section. You, you know, I, I don't want to burst your bubble or anything. I, I know you're, you're a very smart guy. First of all, Weathering Heights, not a, a single, not a, a song. It's a book written by uh, one Emily Bronte of the Bronte Sisters. Also, the Bronte Sisters, not a rock band, not a, not a musical act. Although now that I think about it, I'm now going to start a band called the Bronte Sisters. Well, I'm, I'm pr proud of you know, for knowing it was Emily. I always have to look it up. Who, which one wrote Jane Eyre? Which one wrote... Wuthering Heights, it's a, it's a terrible thing, but it's true. But uh, I'm proud of you because we had to restart the show three times. And I began by saying I was up that hill. Then the second time I said I was in London. And the third time I said it was in Oakland, California. And you're like, oh, I don't know what he's going to say now. He's, it's all, it's crazy here. It's crazy. <laughs> I, I had nothing for Oakland. I was like, Oakland? Oakland, I, I was what the hell's going on? I was prepared for it. By the way, speaking of places on earth, so in Cine Europe, of mm -hmm. course, there's people from all over Europe and sometimes the world. Uh, the number of people that came up to me and said, hey, I listened to your show and I really love it. Awesome. And, and I was really, really, I really, uh, you know, made me so happy. I mean, people like and I, I hope I'm not mispronouncing his name. I'm uh, sure Knut you are. E I'm sure I am, actually. Uh, Knut Edik, he is a cinema engineer and he works uh, like basically, a you know, projection and sound. Cool. Uh, he works at the. Trondheim Chino, spelled K-I-N-O, in, of course, Trondheim, Norway. Uh, and uh, it's a 
it's one of those cinemas that yes, okay, it's not a, a huge multiplex with you know five thousand screens, but it's also a bellwether. Everybody knows Trondheim Chino. Cool. Well, that's awesome. Please, people, tell your friends. When was the last time you told someone else, "Hey, you're in the industry. You should listen to this show." Whether you're in movies or music or books or theater or television, check out Showbiz Sandbox. Please do it. It really helps us. And of course, rate and review. That's true. Should I tell them how they can contact us? I mean, since you're just okay. So if you want to email us, our email address is dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D I R T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We play voicemails that we receive on, on the program. We, we read the emails that come into us and try to answer some of them. Uh, we, answer questions via Twitter at showbiz sandbox is our handle. Uh, we're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbiz sandbox. Yeah. You're not the best at that. I've, I'd never checked the showbiz sandbox site cause that's your baby. And sometimes I go, there's a text waiting to be answered here on Facebook. I'm like, Oops, sorry. <laughs> so yeah, make I, sure you check that all that the too. time. Yeah. Yeah. So did you have a great time in Cine Europe? It was uh, it was really good to see everybody. It was, uh, and I know we'll be talking about it later, but it was really nice to to see the industry recovering. That's cool. Well, what are we going to talk about this week? Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we are, as you say, Michael, running up that road. In fact, we're running up that hill. You see, I brought it right back. You see how I did? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Actually, we're we're tired and just resting a bit. You know, just a little. I was at Cine Europe, as we just mentioned. Apparently, while I was gone, Hollywood decided, you know what? Let's let's take it easy on Sperling when he gets back. Let's not do anything, okay? <laughs> Nothing happened. Not a lot happened, at least in the entertainment world. Tom Cruise made headlines since his new movie is the first film of his career to top one billion dollars worldwide, Woo! and it's the biggest movie of the year so far. And he popped over to Cine Europe to celebrate where we hung out. You know, we kind of, uh, he took me on a plane and tr tried to, you know, make me jump out of it. And yeah, it was. Uh, Are you sure it was Tom Cruise or was it a robot? Uh, well, we'll get into that, actually. Uh, speaking of, uh, well, director Paul Haggins, let's talk about this for a second. He's facing a civil lawsuit for alleged sexual assault. And now, as if that's bad enough, criminal charges in Italy for a separate alleged sexual assault. So... Not good news for director Paul Haggis. On Inside Baseball, we'll take a look at Broadway. New shows are struggling and long-running hits are closing down. The pandemic is hurting movie theaters, but are Broadway theaters in even worse shape? And you know what? I know Broadway seems like, oh, it's a U.S. thing. It's a New York thing. The reality is, and as we'll discuss, what happens in London comes to Broadway. What happens in Broadway goes to Sydney. What opens in Sydney sometimes comes back to Broadway and opens in San Francisco. So... It's these shows are not just New York based. They play all over not the world. Anymore. Yeah. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. That's right. And we're looking at box office around the world and we cover the entire week's box office. Why ignore Monday through Thursday? We ask you people. Everyone should talk about the entire week's box office because they're bigger numbers. It's more fun to say. And the number one movie around the world is the Dino movie, Jurassic World Dominion, $126 million worldwide. It's at $750 million and counting so far, more than $100 million. $114 million came from China. 
You can bitch. You can moan. This is why Hollywood still cares about China. There's a lot of money to be made when they allow your movie to be played and you're allowed to reach a big audience. You can make big bucks. At number two around the world is Top Gun Maverick. $121 million worldwide. That's at $1 billion and $6 million. It just passed the $1 billion mark, and it's still growing strong. I mean, $120 million this week. So that is Tom Cruise's biggest movie of his entire career. We'll get to what Sperling's about to say about adjusting for inflation when we're done with the charts. Lightyear is moving along. That made $66 million this week. That's at $152 million worldwide. Elvis opened up here in North America, the Baz Luhrmann flick. It made $51 million in North America and in other parts of the world. There is, however, an asterisk by this. Warner Brothers. Wait, wait mm-hmm. a second. Oh, I see. So it made $51 million worldwide. Got it. Okay. Because yes. I was like, I thought it only opened to $30 million. But And people are saying, oh, but it only opened to $30 million. Here's what I would say. And here's what you're going to tell us. Yeah. Yeah. What else? What else made a lot of money this weekend? Oh, Jurassic World, Top Gun, Lightyear, Elvis, Black Phone. Oh, so you're saying that there were multiple movies in North America that made over $25 million. Interesting that. Well, five, five movies in all in North America made good money. Uh, that includes Jurassic World Dominion, Top Gun Maverick, Lightyear, a family film, Elvis, a film for older adults, basically. And it is two hours and 40 minutes. So uh, that isn't a problem in terms of showings. Movie theaters can show a lot of them, but it is a problem in terms of getting people to come out to the movie, and yet that's not stopping them. And another one of the big top five hits here in North America is Black Phone, The Black Phone. It's a horror flick starring Ethan Hawke, who has bizarrely good taste in horror movies. <laughs> He's really had a good second career making these you know, low-budget movies that really rack them up. So God bless him. I like Ethan Hawke. I'm a big fan. It cost $18 million to make. It grossed $36 million in its opening week. So you have horror flicks, big franchises, movies that aren't really franchises like Top Gun Maverick. It's been decades since the earlier one came out. You've got family films like Lightyear. You've got Elvis, which is for older adults, though everyone can enjoy it, kids. Go check out Elvis. That's a lot of movies making almost $20 million in the last week from, you know, in North America alone. That shows a big, strong, broad audience. And that's very good news for everyone. Yeah. I mean, if you like musicals of any kind, and if you like biopics of any kind, Elvis is worth seeing. It's a, it's not, everybody's like, oh, Elvis, uh, Tom Hanks is the, the, with the voice and the, you know what? It's a, it's a thoroughly enjoyable movie. Uh, I mean, is it going to tell you anything you didn't already know about Elvis? Is it going to, you know, tell you his true life story? Absolutely not. You, they could have called it anything they wanted and used used Elvis's music. I mean, it, but it's a fun little movie. It's it's not little, but uh, it's a fun. Uh, it's a fun movie. Is it good? Is it on your best of the year list? Well, just the year is young. Uh, I don't know that it, that would be on my best of the year list. All right. There's the, here's the fun thing about the box office. It opened up to $30 million in North America, and it was in a mano a mano battle with Top Gun Maverick until the Monday morning numbers came out, where then Elvis got slightly more money than they thought, and Top Gun made slightly less. But they both made good money, and Elvis came out on top. Worldwide, it made about $20 million, except Warner Brothers said, yeah. It made $20 million, but if everybody had told us what it grossed, it would probably be about 20% bigger 
than that box office. They said, this is just 80% of the box office had actually made, but not everyone reported their numbers. In other words, there's about $5 million missing from this opening week total of 51 million. It could have been 56 million, and all that extra money would have came in from overseas. Why or how that's happening is a mystery. Well, in Europe, at least, it was midsummer uh, in Scandinavia as well. Uh, and so there was a lot of, a lot of, you know, I don't know, like celebration. So I wonder if that kind of put a crimp in, into the box office. Didn't you see the? No, it's not the box office being down. It's the fact that people didn't report box office that actually happened. They're saying there's another $5 million out there. And you're just saying people are on vacation, so they didn't get back to the office. No, no, to report no. no. What I meant was, yeah, exactly. It's the reporting that the, yes, not, right. so not people that they didn't on vacation. Go, didn't they see the movie Midsommar, the horror flick? Do not go to those festivals. Are you crazy? Anyway, <laughs> the world box office was good. In North America, a lot of movies made money in the same week. That is a huge change from the past nine months where we've seen individual movies like Spidey and Batman and so on score big bucks, but basically nothing else is making a penny. And it's only movies geared towards you know, teenage boys and young men, and of course, older men like me. But anyway, these are big movies. They're reaching a broad audience. There are different types of movies for everybody. So this is very good news for the box office here in North America and definitely around the world as well. So those are the big movies so far. We talked about Jurassic Park, Top Gun Maverick, Lightyear, Elvis, The Black Phone made $36 million. Then China. China has some good news too. A new Chinese drama called Lighting Up the Stars opened uh, it didn't open. It went wide this week. It made about $35 million this week. I believe it made about $2 million in a sneak uh, the week ago setting up that movie. It's a tearjerker about a funeral director who I think was released from prison, and he befriends a little orphan girl. You're going to cry. It's going to be adorable. But that movie opened very big in China, and the good news there is the box office is about 80% open. About 80% of the theaters that are available are now open again in China. The bad news is we're coming up on the summer season, and that's when Hollywood movies have a blackout period of about six weeks. Historically, we're like, you're not getting your movie during peak summertime. This is for China movies. However, number one, it's true. No Hollywood movies are scheduled for release in the coming months. Not a single film has a release schedule set yet in the future. I believe that's true. But the other problem is they need movies. There is a big backlog of Chinese films, but... You know, exhibitors are starved for product. They're going to want some of those big Hollywood movies. We'll have to see where the government ends up. Maybe that blackout won't stick. Maybe some Hollywood movies will get through. But like it's been now for years, it's just catch as catch can. You cannot depend on it. It's not a dependable market like, say, France or the UK or Brazil or Mexico or anywhere else. It's a country where you just never know if your movie is going to get released or when. So it's very, very undependable. So once you get past lighting up the stars, there's a big drop. Then we got movies making $8 million and less. Doctor Strange made $8 million. It's at $950 million worldwide. Hasn't hit a billion, but it did it without China or Russia. That's very big. So did Top Gun Maverick. That did it without China or Russia, too. Uh, One Week Friends, a Chinese youth drama. That had a decent hold from last week. It opened up last week while Sperling was away and they made about $6 million. This week it made about $7 million, but of course that covers the whole week. So it's dropped a little bit, but it's at $13 million total. The roundup, the Korean action flick, is about to pass $100 million worldwide. A Korean horror movie, The Witch Part 2, the other one, that movie 
uh, made about $4 million this week. It's at $16 million in counting. So it's not a big player, but it's there. The Indian market is a little quieter. The big new movie, I believe, is Jug Jug Jio. It's an Hindi Indian film about newly married couples. The twist is that one of the couples is young and the other couple are people in the middle age who are older and they're both dealing with the the, the vagaries of being newly married. That opened up to about $4 million. I do have a question. Sperling already gave you the contact, contact info. My question is, do we keep saying this is a Telugu film? Do we keep saying this is a Hindi film? Do we keep saying all the a Tamil film? Do we celebrate that those distinctive areas because they're all important areas of creativity in India? Or do we just celebrate them all by saying they're Indian? Is it important and good to make those distinctions? Uh, let us know. Yeah, I would actually be. I, I do. I mean, I know that in India it's important, but I, I do wonder if how they would feel about it, especially yeah. Indian expats. Where like, no, 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 it's really good to say it's a Telugu movie or a Tamil film because I'm Tamil <laughs> and I want to celebrate it. That's probably my guess, and there's no reason not to. But we'll find out. Um, what if you're a minion? What if you're a minion? Yeah, the that, minions, the rise of Gru, had a sneak preview overseas. It made three million dollars. It opens up uh, next week or a week, a week. I, I know later. this much. I don't know, but I can tell you this. All of the exhibitors at Cine Europe were like, I I've got to go put my Minion tickets on sale. Like they were all like everybody's geared up. for. The I didn't realize the Minions were so big. I mean, really? they're little tiny things. They're like little uh, yeah, tiny yeah. things. Very movies made on a dime, all about 60 to $80 million, Despicable Me franchise, and all of them making a ton of money worldwide. Minions, The Rise of Gru will be no exception. And we have two movies for older people, everything, everywhere, all at once. The Michelle Yao film, that's at $89 million. And Downton Abbey, A New Era, is also at $89 million. The, uh, Downton Abbey just seems to have fallen off a cliff. It's now available on streaming. My mom saw it twice in the theater. Now she's seen it twice on streaming already <laughs> in the last few days. The original grossed $194 million. This one grossed $90 million. You have to say it's a bit of a disappointment, though, in this era, it, you know, it definitely tripled its budget. I think that's a safe bet to say it definitely made money for people. So there's an argument to be made for making another Downton Abbey movie or maybe just make a new miniseries slash season, you know, make 10 episodes and put it on TV. Because I think if there's any can, problem can, with the movies that they can't have. Hmm? Can I just point something out? Sure. Um, how, how old is your mom? 93. Okay. And she went to the movies, not once, but twice to see Downton Abbey. So Universal, right. please take Note. Then, by the way, ironically, she also decided to stream said movie. So maybe if you put a movie in a movie theater and fans really love it, they'll go to it more than once. And then guess what? When it's available at home, they're going to want to see it again. And they will actually subscribe to your streaming service. And she saw a uh, trailer for Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris with Imelda Staunton based on a charming uh, comic novel. Uh, all her older friends who saw that trailer were like, ooh, I'd like to see that. So Can, I, know, can I tell you, I saw that movie at Cine mm -hmm. Europe. I know I'm not supposed to, you're not supposed to talk about it. I don't think they would mind me telling you if that movie does not get women over the age of 50 into movie theaters, I mean, it's a, it's like a fairy tale, that movie. It's <laughs> really, there is nothing wrong with this. I mean, people will like it. Let's just put it that way. It's yeah, a, no, it, it looks a, like a, and Imelda Staunton's a great actress, a great oh talent. Oh my gosh, she is amazing. Yeah. yeah. It, and she does such a good job. Yeah. I mean, is it, again, you know, I know you always like to go, is it no, one no, of your top 10? Sweet, sweet, charming movie. Oh, absolutely. It's it's definitely, let's put it this way. If your mother liked Downton Abbey, she's going to like 
Mrs. Harris goes to Paris. Not surprised to hear. Uh, Downton Abbey did pull in older audiences, though not as much as we would have liked to see, but it certainly turned on the lights. So did Everything Everywhere All at Once. And of course, Elvis. Elvis is in pulling in older adults, including women. Uh, so that is good to see. They are they are making movies for older adults. Top Gun Maverick has obviously expanded out. It's not just for older people because younger people are going. Uh, but as we said before, Tom Cruise, his first billion dollar hit. It's shocking to believe that it's his first billion dollar hit after all these years, Sperling. I mean, you know, he had all those hits before, but they didn't gross a billion dollars, did they? I'm sorry, I, I wasn't uh, paying attention. I was actually um, I'm mapping out the Top Gun times the gross times uh, rate of inflation, 1986 times. Oh, hold on, wait. I think. Oh, um, I'm yeah. Actually, I um, I'm bad at math. I just realized I'm not very good at math. That's that's what this. Don't worry. I've done the math. That's right. I've looked back at Tom Cruise's filmography. I've adjusted for inflation on all the movies that had a shot of being a billion-dollar flick. And it turns out Tom Cruise has made seven films that have grossed more than $900 million. That's pretty cool. And two have grossed a billion. What about so Legend? He, did, did Legend make any money? Yeah, you know? That's right. Kick a man when he's up. So <laughs> what makes Tom Cruise such an interesting movie star is that he, until Mission Impossible, he was not really making franchises or certainly not the the you know indiana joneses or the avengers type movies that we're seeing today that have always been around of course he, no, was he making, purposefully avoided them he purposefully avoided them well sure but it's not like war of the worlds is an unknown property you know it's not like you know war sure. of the worlds is some more oh, what could that be about you know it's a famous novel he's made stuff based on on big novels but uh, of the seven movies that have grossed 900 million, three were based on Mission Impossible, a massively successful TV series that he turned into a very profitable film franchise. So three of them have grossed more than $900 million. War of the Worlds with uh, Steven Spielberg grossed more than $900 million. But then there's Top Gun 1, certainly a movie designed to be a summer blockbuster popcorn flick. But when you adjust it for inflation, that movie made $956 million. That's a lot of money. And it was a, he wasn't a big star, and the movie was an unknown property. It was just a, a film with no particular backstory. So that was an unsold property. Uh, but it wasn't until Top Gun 2 Maverick that he finally made his second $1 billion grossing movie. But his first one. Again, full credit to Tom Cruise. His first movie to gross a billion dollars when you adjust for inflation is Rain Man. Big movie, Dustin Hoffman, Barry Levin, Tom Cruise, but not a movie you would predict to be that much of a box office blockbuster, but that's exactly what it was. So Rain Man, when you adjust for inflation, made $1,025,000,000. So he's done it before, he's done it again, and Rain Man is the answer to that question. Uh, so what you're saying is a movie about a guy who could do math in his head, like at the, at the drop of a hat is, uh, could, he probably could have told you that. Right. You know? Whether you're, whether you're on the a spectrum or whether you're in a jet, cause they got to do serious math on the top of their head too, in Top Gun Maverick. So Tom Cruise has never gone away, but he's as big as he's ever been. And that's 40 years into his career. So that's pretty impressive. The box office is back. Four to five movies grossing a lot of money in North America. That shows that if studios release a range of films that can appeal to a range of people and keep that steady product coming, theaters 
can benefit, everybody will flourish, and audiences will show up. Are they doing that for the rest of the year? It sure doesn't look like it, but when they do, it will pay off. Let's hope those theaters can hold on until Hollywood gets back into the swing of things. So you were just there at Cine Europe. You, people are talking about this, of course. Did they feel more enthusiastic? Were they like, yes, box office is back? Or are they still feeling a little bit pins and needles and not really ready to you know, break out the popcorn yet? Well, they think that definitely uh, box office is not box office, but the, the industry is coming back. That's for sure. Uh, you know, they're very happy that movies like Everything, Everywhere, All at Once is doing well. Uh, it made $66 billion here in the U.S. And as you pointed out uh, previously, it is A24's biggest movie domestically to date. Of course, I say domestically. It's the only <laughs> that's that's like it only re they only release movies domestically that I know of. Uh, but and, you know, Focus Features, uh, they have a film out now called Brian and Charles that I'm dying to see. I missed all the the uh, the, the big the screenings. Yeah, I really everybody I know who's seen this movie loves it. Brian and Charles definitely try and seek out that film. That's the man who makes a robot. About the man who makes a robot out of like a dishwashing machine or like a, a clothes dryer or clothes, wa you know, a washing machine. Uh, so that and Marcel, the shell with shoes on. Everybody I know who has seen this movie loves it. I cannot wait to see this movie. And it did incredibly well in the six theaters that it opened in here in, in the U.S. Well, and those are small, incredibly well is a strong way to put it. But those are probably small movies that aren't going to make a lot of box office. But they will keep the art house theaters going. And that's really important because you need them as well. That trains the next generation of filmmakers. That appeals to a segment of the audience. And when you add them all up, that's a good chunk of box office. So you need the Angelicas of the world. You need those independent cinemas to have the movies that they want. Like here in Birmingham, Alabama, we've got sidewalk cinemas. Uh, you know, so they need product too. Not every movie has to be a billion dollar blockbuster. You need Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris and you need Marcel and Brian and Charles. So, but Cine Europe, what was the, were, were people feeling good? Um, I had a question for you. I, I, I wondered, um, you know, We've been talking a lot about windowing and the laws in France and Italy and how they're changing and they're still really, really strict compared to most of the rest of the world. Is there any push to like have an EU wide windowing regulation or there, there you know? is certainly some thought to that saying, well, why, why are we like discussing this for Italy and France? And this is exactly what's wrong with the EU. But I think that's mostly Americans <laughs> talking about it. Um, I they do would wonder just want, if, like they would want Italy and, and, and France to to take over the regulations that the rest of Europe is de facto using, which is kind of like the 45 day window. It's a little loosey goosey. There are lots of sort of snarling local rules like France is famous for to help support its film industry. And heck they did invent cinema. So that's what they want. But is there any push by France and Italy or are exhibitors in France and Italy happy with their country? Or are they worried? Like, you know, we're going to not get the product we want. I think they're not worried yet. Because they're basically like, okay, so Disney took one film away. Okay, maybe the film wasn't so great. Uh, but ultimately, well, Warner Brothers took an entire year away during the pandemic. And now that, you know, well, so now right. they're on a case by case basis again. But there's no question that there are some mid and small movies, the ones that we know are so important, that are going straight to streaming rather than bothering with box office. And even in here in North America, that's a concern. People are saying, look, bring these movies to the box office. We need them too. It can't all be Top Gun Maverick. Uh, are they concerned about that in Europe, about just the product flow? Not yet. No, not yet at all. Uh, in fact, I think there's 
they're secretly, uh, some of the exhibitors are secretly kind of going, yeah, all right, maybe, you know, maybe this pushback, uh, maybe we'll force them. If everybody starts, you know, all of a sudden the Netherlands has a little bit of a, of a 90 day theatrical window or, or, uh, you know, that, that is the hope. And, and the hope also is that frankly, Netflix will come to the table and start releasing movies. The problem, of course, France with, with its, it has, Definitely onerous, the most. Yeah, yeah, it's seventeen months. It's pretty long, you know. Hey, the way I look at it is, you released a movie in the movie theater, and we're 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 doing a study now, Michael, uh, on the forty-five day window. And I and actually, I have those charts for you, Michael. I, I can see <laughs> Michael actually, and he just he rolled his eyes so 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 much that I, I'm wondering right now if we have to call an eye doctor because or an exorcist. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But that said, you know, a lot of times these movies are done after six, eight, nine weeks. So maybe, maybe three months, four months, four months is fine. Five months is fine. You know, 17 months. It, previously, it was three years. So no wonder. I, have, I feel like we looked at box office and as a preview, we looked at the box office in 2019 and said, oh, you know what? The vast majority of money is made by 45 days. However, we are also assuming that if your movie's still doing well, you'll leave it in the theaters after 45. If it's still chugging along, why would you throw it on a streamer when you're still making good money? But that doesn't seem to be what's happening in practice. Uh, and, you know, it seems to be 45 days, boom. They don't care. They're just like, wow, I can stream it now. And so they're doing it like it's a demand. It doesn't need to be. And they're cutting the legs out of movies that should have legs. And furthermore, I can't help feeling part of Lightyear. No question that this Pixar film is poorly reviewed. One of the weaker reviewed Pixar films in history. And I, I, I spend most evenings at Panera Bread, a, a chain here in North America, fast casual. And I, I know the employees well, and I can hear them talking all night long. And somebody was trying to explain to someone else what the movie was about. And he's like, well, you know, the toy Buzz Lightyear, that's based on a movie, you know, a movie and it spun up. And this is the actual movie that was popular that the toy came from. And you're like, oh yeah, that is actually hard to explain. <laughs> it wasn't when I heard it. I just thought, oh, that's clever. But in fact, it is a little hard to explain. So those created a problem along with poor reviews, but audiences who have seen it like it, but you know, it's just sort of fallen off. It's not having the legs I would expect, even for a movie that opened where it did. And I'm getting the sense of like, no, people, they saw, you know, three Pixar films on streaming right away. And they're like, well, that's going to be on streaming any minute. Maybe I shouldn't bother. 45 days is really, really quick. And while we know 90% of the box office, not 100% is done in 45 days. If you're also training people to just know 90 days is really quick. Three months is really quick, but it's not as quick as 45 days. And I'm afraid that makes that desire and that feeling of like, I can just wait. You know, when people said, oh, it's I can wait for the video, that meant a year. Right. That meant nine months. That was a long, long wait, maybe six months for a really quick release that was, you know, died at the theater. And people would say, oh, I can just, you know, I'll watch that on video. And that, but they were literally knowing they'd wait a year. And this is really, really quick. Let, let's put it this way. When you have people like me saying, should I just wait for that to come? I mean, when it's me saying it, you've got a problem. Because You're if a people like me are saying it, yeah, I'm a heavy movie goer. I love seeing movies on the big screen rather than, than uh, on a television. And when you have people like me asking that question, I can guarantee you this. Almost everybody else has, asked that, has said that before me. So yeah. I'm the last person in line.
All right, so that brings us to social justice. Uh, that wraps up box office. That's uh, some very good news there in the box office. Some uh, good news for people who want social justice and bad news for director Paul Haggis. He has been arrested in Italy on sexual assault charges. Uh, so that's not good, um, but it's good for the woman, of course. When you say, oh, bad news. Well, no, it's good news for the woman who was assaulted, or allegedly, I should say. He was taking part in the new Allura Fest, a film festival that that is taking place in Italy. He was holding master classes at the festival and uh, there was a woman and she was found wandering in airport. The police and the airport staff took her in, took her to a hospital and ultimately filed charges against director Paul Haggis. Now the film festival, and this is why I'm talking about this story. Uh, we can't cover every allegation against every person. In fact, there was a, a former agent who's just been filed with charges against his ex-wife that was in the trades email a few minutes ago. But anyway, Haggis is at this film festival that's just launching and the festival, as soon as they heard about this, well, we support the woman and we distance ourselves from him and we're very shocked and upset to hear, as of course they should say. The problem here is that he was already facing shocking charges from earlier claims of sexual assault. He faces a court date after being sued by a publicist who says he violently raped her. The trial was delayed by COVID uh, and that's why he hasn't gone to court yet on that accusation. And when the woman's story became news, Three more women went public with their own stories of sexual misconduct by Haggis, not all alleged sexual assault, but they all alleged sexual misconduct. So we have four women who came forward and talked about director Paul Haggis, including one who took him to court. And in that context for a film festival to say, Everyone is innocent until proven guilty. But when four women come forward and there's it's enough cre you know, credibility that it's going to court, you might say, gee, maybe this isn't the time to have him at your film festival. And now he's being arrested on further charges in Italy, completely separate from the earlier charges. So that's just an ugly, ugly mess. Now, Sprung, you got some feedback on our streaming discussions that we have every week, because every week we have numbers from Nielsen reporting on streaming numbers from North America, from people watching on their smart televisions. <laughs> it's the only glimpse we have into what's popular in streaming. And because streaming is so dominating in the industry right now, everybody's talking about streaming. It's affecting the studios and what they put in theaters and what they put on TV and when. We feel like we got to talk about it. But some people were like, ah, enough with those numbers, right? Yeah, they don't really care about the numbers. They do care about, say, oh, gee, what's popular? Because they want to know, can I watch it in my my <laughs> own? Can I watch it in my country? Uh, so when people were coming up and telling me that they enjoy listening to the to the program, that that's really what they were saying is, I, I don't care that 682 billion trillion minutes were, they just want to know, oh, the Lincoln lawyer? That What is that? I, I, wasn't that a movie with Matthew McConaughey? Oh, wait, it's a TV series now? Hold on, I got to go find that. Is, is it any good? Because uh, that's number one? Okay, what is it? Well, it's and Netflix. it was written by Michael Connelly, not not John Grisham. Uh, so thank you for that. But of course, we're not Entertainment Weekly. We're not here to rate and review shows and say, hey, you should watch the hot new show. We're here trying to talk about all this stuff from a business perspective. So sometimes when we talk about like the Lincoln lawyer for the latest numbers that we have for the week of May 16th through May 22, there's always like a month lag before we get the numbers. The Lincoln lawyer was watched one point. Eight billion minutes. That's a lot. And Ozark, one billion minutes. It's been out for a, a number of weeks now. It dropped on uh, April 29th. So that show is still going strong. This season, the series finale of Ozark, I believe. So those so two can shows I, can I just, are uh, very pop. Mm -hmm. 
Can, can I just break in? So there I am on my 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 twelve hour flight home, right? And I'm sitting next to an, an Englishman who I did not say a single word to. Uh, and there is on Iberia Airlines a a ton. I mean, you can watch name a movie, na- any movie. There's like five trillion different movies you could watch and television mm-hmm. shows on their little entertainment system. He whips out his iPad and he starts watching Ozark. He's like, that's what I want to watch. He's got yeah. the ability. That's why that's why not being able to track numbers on people's laptops and 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 iPads, which is the way I watch most of that sort of TV right now, is really, you know, creating a gap in our knowledge about what's how popular these shows are. So it's good to know what's popular. It's good to know that Disney Plus released a new movie, Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers, with Andy Samberg doing a voice of one of the Chip or Dale, I don't know which. But that's an interesting sort of meta little movie that com- combines animation and live action. That's doing well for them. Uh, so it's good to know what's happening and where new talent is going to rise from and what's getting good reviews and what's being successful. But we're also excited when we can cover things like Squid Game and Lupin, shows from around the world that are breaking out in North America, because that means the investment in uh, overseas by U.S. studios and the investment in their countries. This is why France wants to have those regulations we find so pesky. They want money invested in France in French productions so they can continue to create stuff relevant to France and stuff that can travel the globe, not just get access to, you know, the latest Star Wars movie. They want to have their own vibrant industry, and we want them to have that too. Which brings us to the one bit of news we have this week, and that is about Paramount+. Plus. They announced seven new international titles, titles that are not just based in North America or on Star Trek. They have promised that they're <laughs> going to have 150 international originals in all by the year 2025, which sounds pretty great. I would also point out once I looked it up, they're in 50 countries right now, roughly. They're going to have 60 by 2023. Uh, so that's their goal. So by 2025, they'll probably be in even more than 60 countries. But since probably four of those shows are France and three are from Spain, I'm guessing they're going to end up with about one to one and a half shows per country. <laughs> so it's a big investment. It sounds like a big investment. But when you break it down in all these countries they're in, maybe Nigeria gets one show. Maybe South Africa gets one show invested in by Paramount Plus. That's not to diminish what they're doing. That's just to point out how big the world is, how many countries there are. And so, yes, every country wants their own show, but good luck creating, you know, you want it to be a good one. So you got one show in South Africa. Let's hope it's good because otherwise next year you'll have none. But it's, it's a lot of money to invest. And that's where Netflix, they are way ahead of the game, aren't they? Oh, yeah, abso- absolutely. I mean, look, Lupin, think about it. That movie, movie, listen to me, that series came from France. They they actually, the first trailer had it dubbed into English because they thought nobody's going to want to listen to French, uh, the French soundtrack when they could just hear it dubbed. And people, rev- you know, there was a revolt. They said, no, 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 give us the subtitles. We want yes. the original soundtrack. You know what? You got a good show. It's a good show. Squid Game. Look at Squid Game. Lupin, Come by on. the way, is a, is a Netflix series. Right. That's why I'm, yeah, that's kind right, of Right, right. Just to remember, yeah. yeah. And Squid Game, also Netflix series, right? Yes, I believe so. Squid Game, yes, yes. So that, yeah, it is. And and as we look at the numbers, I think we covered this last week or the week before, but when you look at Netflix and the obligations they have country by country throughout Europe, they're pretty much there already in terms of meeting their quotas for having 
local productions that are active and ongoing that they are making. So there are high standards. These countries say, hey, you want our business. You need to invest in local productions. Uh, it gets very, very expensive. Netflix is already pretty much there. They're pretty much meeting their priorities. So that's a big deal because that just makes it all the harder for other streaming companies to catch up. Yeah. Uh, wait. Oh, oh, I see what you did there. Like, I was like going to keep going like, yeah, let's talk more streaming. Uh, but then you you had to do it, didn't you? You just had to say a uh, uh, big deal, which means it's time for Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Now, the big winner at the BET Awards, get this, the Supreme Court did not see that coming. Totally. I didn't even know they were back together again. The Supreme Court. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, artist after artist kept mentioning the nine justices here in the United States. In the old days, acts thanked God or their agents. But at the BET Awards, everyone gave a shout out to the court. Or maybe shout out is too polite because, of course, no one who spoke up was really pleased with recent court rulings? Taraji P. Henson was not happy with them. J Janelle Monet, by the way, made a hand gesture that I'm still trying to interpret, and she used a word that we cannot repeat if we don't want the FCC getting all George Carlin on us. And if you don't know who George Carlin is, definitely look him up. And In watch any that case, new HBO documentary. Oh, there's a there's new, a, that's true. There there's is a, a great new HBO documentary about George Carlin. That's right. In any case, rapper Jack Harlow wore a Lil Nas X shirt to protest the queer artist being snubbed in nominations. Bruno Mars and Anderson Pack won Album of the Year thanks to An Evening with Silk Sonic. Kanye West popped up to pay tribute to Lifetime Achievement Award winner Sean Combs. And Will Smith won Best Actor and his film King Richard won Best Film. Was he there? I didn't read any speech things, so I'm not sure, actually, now that you mentioned that. That's a, that's a very good question, because I kept looking to see, well, what did he say? Did he make any well, references? Was any of this a big deal or a big whoop? Oh, well, it's a big whoop in the scheme of things, but uh, BET Awards is a good program. They have good performances, and, um, you know, it's, uh, it's an award show. It's just a chance for you to, to see, <laughs> see what happened, you know, see stuff that you might want to do. I do not see a clip of Will Smith talking at the BET Awards, so I'm assuming he did not. Okay. But I don't know. I should have figured that out more. But it's a big whoop, but it's a, it's a good night. It's a highly rated show. Uh, a lot of great talent involved from Jasmine Sullivan, who was the first act to win. I love Janelle Monae. She's great. Taraji B. Hansen. So, you know, a good night was had by all. Now, okay, you know who's not having a good night? Who? Fans of Major League Soccer who don't have Apple TV+. Plus. <laughs> because Apple TV just made a major commitment to Major League Soccer. The streaming service signed a 10-year deal, which makes it the only place you can see every single MLS game starting in 2023, at least here in the U.S. The $2.5 billion deal comes on the heels of Apple nabbing the rights to Friday night baseball games from Major League Baseball. That's a lot of majors in just a few sentences, by the way. Amazon gets the NFL's Thursday night football game starting in the fall, and Viacom 18 just got the streaming rights to Premier League cricket. Oh, it's a wicked googly. Yeah, yeah. You know what uh, Netflix says? Yeah, we're, we still ain't interested in sports, okay? You guys, you guys spend all your billions. See you later. Uh, big deal or big whoop? Uh, well, it's a, it's a big deal. 
um, for Major League Soccer, big paycheck. Interesting. All soccer games will feature an option of announcers in English or Spanish, while any games with Canadian teams will also offer French commentary. So that's good to see, and that's great to see that flexibility. you got to have two teams of announcers, of course, but maybe they use the local team or something for one of the teams. I don't know. I don't know whether they're mounting two full-on Apple TV commentators or whether they're just using feeds from the local teams. So that's a good question to, to look at. But here's why they spent the money. It's because of what we said before about Netflix being so far ahead, right? Netflix has so many shows. It has big hits. It keeps producing hits. It's in all over the world. It's meeting its commitments. And when you're saying, oh, my God, how am I going to catch up? Well, they're not doing sports. And if you want to watch Major League Soccer and you want one easy place where you can go to, this is the first time, I believe, a major Sport, however, that is defined in America. A major sport has every single game available at one outlet. It's so split up now that you can't just turn to one place. You've got local games on, you know, the Yes Network in New York for the Yankees, or you've got uh, mid-level games at the Big Ten Network or the or the you know uh, Fox, you know, regional network. So all these things are so ESPN, ESPN Plus, uh, uh, Peacock. You know, all these different places you have to go to to find your games. Just if you like football or baseball well in this case for the first time ever you like major league soccer you know you can go to apple tv and see them all you can go to other places and see some of these games they won't all be exclusive but every single game will be available on apple tv that's the first time that's happened for a major sport in the u.s and with 2.5 billion dollars spread out over 10 years that's 250 million dollars a year to make it clear if you like soccer or football as we call it you got to go to apple tv and that's a quick, easy way to gain more viewers before you can even remotely scale up to try and compete with Netflix when it comes to programming. Speaking of programming, you know who provides a lot of programming? Who? BTS. BTS, they're the biggest band in the world, but they are now taking a break. <gasps> you know, uh, yeah, I, I told them, look, five minutes, fine. Ten minutes, you're pushing it. You better be back on stage in 15 minutes. Uh, but as you know, K-pop superstars BTS are taking a break, so all seven members can explore solo projects. The writing was certainly on the wall when J-Hope was named a headliner at Lollapalooza. We talked about yeah. it a couple weeks yeah, ago. Yeah, we were like, what the heck? Like, how is that happening? <laughs> right, well... You know, once it was official, the stock price of the band's label, Hybe, took a nosedive. But here's the question. Why, after all, Sync spun off Justin Timberlake, One Direction led to Harry Styles, not to mention good hits for all the other members. Fleetwood Mac's members do quite well on their own, thank you very much. Yeah. And the Beatles' breakup led to John, Paul, George, and Ringo all having substantial solo careers, if memory serves, though my memory is almost full and I'm can't really remember too much of Ringo's. In, in any case, uh, if the BTS label can rep them all, if all those seven can be repped by Hybe, did they replace one act with seven acts? And can't they then do a reunion tour, which you know people like me who don't know a single song by those guys except for Butter and like, you know, I, I, I don't know what the other songs are. I would go see them. That's how like, you know, hyped up I'd be for a reunion tour. Big deal or big whoop? Ah, yes, stepped all over the joke. Oh, what was the joke? <laughs> Memory Almost Full is a Paul McCartney solo album from 2007. And you, and you gumbled it up when you made a joke about Ringo. So when I said maybe my memory's almost full, that was a, a quiet nod to one of Paul's better albums uh, uh, from his solo career. But anyway, um, it's, it's interesting. It does not have to be the, you know, Hybe was already recognizing we're too dependent on one act. They have branched out in other financial ways to get more money and revenue coming in from things 
not related to BTS putting out music. Some of that includes BTS merchandise and other things. So that stuff would presumably fade if they were away for a while. But they say, no, 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 we're just doing solo stuff. Then we can come back together. It's not a breakup. It's not a breakup. And uh, days later, their double album anthology did open at number one in North America. Uh, this week, it's Drake's new album, Actually, never mind. Uh, so that is now number one, but they were at number one uh, with their new album. So that's cool. Mostly an anthology. And it raises the question of military service. They had a delay in military service because they're such a big industry for Korea. It's kind of like ABBA was for Sweden at one point, their biggest export. Well, this band really does raise the profile of Korea all over the world. And so it was, well, let them give a break. They don't have to do military. Well, now if they're taking a break and doing solo stuff, I mean, J-Hope is 29 years old. They're supposed to do it by the age 30. So maybe they'll work in a military service as well because getting away from that seems a little harder to, to, to justify when the band itself is taking a hiatus. But I think they'll be okay if just one of them is a Harry Styles, if just one of them is a Justin Timberlake and, the, and Hybe has the rights to them, they'll be okay. Yeah. So you might, if you're gonna if you're gonna gamble on the stock market, you're just gonna gamble on, and you know you just want to you know roll the dice on something. I'd wait till the high you know record stock was at a low, and then go. You know what? I bet the minute J Hope releases an album and it does well, that stock will jump back up. Because long term, this is not bad news yet. Certainly worrying, please, but it happens. Please note: we are not advised to give uh, <laughs> investment stock information. Tips. It's yeah. for entertainment purposes only. Yeah, exactly. And even that uh, is speak- questionable at times. <laughs> at times? How about always? Yeah. <laughs> but in any case, the daytime Emmys, talk about something that's North American-centric. They are as safe and predictable as the CBS primetime lineup. General Hospital is the most honored soap opera of all time. Jeopardy keeps winning the award for best game show and so on. Well, the daytime Emmys just took place and the familiar still triumphs. General Hospital won, get this, best soap opera. Go figure. I mean, you know, daytime drama. Yes. That's what, yeah. For the 15th time, Jeopardy won best game show again. It the Kelly is. Clarkson, yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, well, it is. Uh, yeah, the Kelly Clarkson show won best chat show and best host again. Although, doesn't she also sing? In any case, uh, ho- wait, 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 hold on. All the wins for acting went to people who had never won before, and Michelle Morgan, a star on The Young and the Restless, is the first Black woman to win the Best Actress Daytime Emmy in history. How is that even possible? And at this day and age, have you looked at daytime sh- shows before? Uh, historically very lily white so you know okay well she she said we you know we are breaking glass ceilings left right and center she's gonna have to pay for those okay those glass ceilings do not come cheap she will well she also said we can and we will do this thing called equality and unity together now sharpen your pitchforks and join me at the supreme court no she didn't say that but uh big deal or big whoop it's a big deal. It's great. I have to say that daytime Emmys are very predictable in the major show categories. And of course, in soaps, there are so few soaps left. Pretty much everyone gets nominated every year. There's just not enough competition, even though they're adding in streaming shows only because uh, what choice do they have? But they do have a better track record of not giving the acting prizes to the same person over and over and over again. Yes, they often get nominated year after year. Look at Susan Lucci. But I think because the casts are so big, that that's why they have a little bit of a better job at you know spreading out the love. So that's good to see. But it's certainly notable this year that all five winners, actor, actress, supporting actors, and juvenile, 
I don't know what they call it, but younger rising star or something. All five were new. So that's cool. And her win is a great one. And it was a long time coming. Uh, actor Darnell Williams was the first person of color to win an acting award from the daytime Emmys. He did it as a best supporting actor for the soap All My Children. He was part of one of daytime TV's first black power couples. So they began to have more diversity in the 80s and probably even in the 70s, I imagine. But you really can see a range of, uh, of, of ethnicities now and see America reflected much better on daytime soaps than you would have in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So he did it in, in 1983 for Best Supporting Actor. Then he won Best Actor in 1985. And I said, well, who was the first woman to do it? It was his wife, Debbie Morgan, the, act, the woman who played his wife on the show All My Children. She won the first acting Emmy and supporting role back in 1989. So 83, 85, 89. And now to get that one last piece of the puzzle, it's taken 33 years. So it is, in fact, a long time coming. But uh, congrats to her for certainly doing that. You have way too much time on your hands that you looked all that up. Well, we'll get to Joel Whippern in just a minute. Okay, well, you know what? Here's the thing. If you're going to look all that up, do me a favor. I know you are our theater guru, our Broadway guru, our, our legit theater guru, so to speak. So, you know what? Let's move on into Inside Baseball, where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business, and more importantly, how they affect you. And the fact that I even heard about any of this during Cine Europe from people at Cine Europe means... Wow, I guess people are paying attention to Broadway. Then it dawned on me, of course, I was like, oh, well, dear Evan Hansen, Mamma Mia, these are all things that come from Broadway. No wonder they're paying attention to what, what Broadway productions are doing well and not doing well, and which might just, you know, at some point become, you know, a movie that they're playing in a movie theater. So what was the big news? That dear Evan Hansen didn't do well. <laughs> no, dear Evan did great. What are you talking about? Dear Evan Hansen, oh, you mean the movie? Yes, yes, oh, yes. No. We're talking about Broadway. What's the news? Oh, well, that Beanie Feldstein said, you know, Broadway's great, but funny thing happened. I don't want to be the funny girl anymore. Uh, and that was really quick. Beanie Feldstein, the, the star of Broadway's musical Funny Girl, will be exiting the show after five months. Co-star Jane Lynch is also going, but she may have had TV commitments already lined up. For Feldstein, this is news because someone like her meant to anchor a big musical like this would have been signed for at least a year. So who will replace her in September? That's my question. If they want to make news and turn the show into a must-see again, Leah Michelle maybe from Glee? That's, I don't yeah, know. She she's the obvious. Born, she felt she was born to play the role. She's dying to play the role. She's itching to play the role. Um, so that would be the easy, obvious choice for sure. The understudy is great. I've heard really good things about the understudy. She can sing and dance. And Beanie Feldstein, unfortunately, has not really pulled it off. But the whole show seems a little bit misguided. Uh, the production design, I've heard poor things about. There's these gigantic staircases. Uh, the book is better than the original, but not that much better. But it's a problem when you don't have a lead singer who can pull off the big songs. That's you're there to hear. Don't rain on my parade. You know, you're there to hear those big numbers and she can do the, the acting and the comic stuff, but she's not quite killing it when it comes to the musical numbers. That's why she's leaving after five months. That's really, really quick. The show's doing okay at the box office, but it is not the success it needs to be to have a long run. And that's why, you know, she's moving on and they need a new name. Leah Michelle is what I would do. Just, just, Pulling numbers out of a hat. That's that's the person that's really going to make, you know, people say, ooh, they're all going to want to talk about that show again because she was seen as just, you know, meant to be in that show. And she so desperately wants to be in it. And it would be a story in and of itself. But, you know, here's the bigger story. She's leaving that show. 
Um, it's going to have trouble lasting no matter who goes into it because it's not a well-done show. But it could be like Annie Get Your Gun. That show opened up with a wildly miscast Bernadette Peters. Bernadette Peters was just wrong for Annie Oakley. It was a bizarre casting. She's a Cupid doll. She's urban to her core. She is not Annie Oakley. Uh, but she did the show. She did a run. And then Reba McIntyre came in, took the show over, and people were like, wow, this is a great show. They like It was felt like a whole new show just because there was a new lead performance. That can happen, and it could happen here. But right now, there are 29 shows on Broadway, and a lot of them are not doing well. 29 shows on Broadway, long-running shows that are pre-sold. Well, wait, but before you get into that, how many theaters are there on Broadway? Because we know that, I think we talked about this maybe even on this, you know, earlier, just how many houses there are and how, for a while before the pandemic, you know, you had to wait for a house to be, remember when Beetlejuice was getting kicked out so that the music man could come in? <laughs> remember that? Like, so- how many? There's like 40 houses on Broadway, right? You could do that's right. There's 41 professional theaters, and to be a Broadway house, you have to be certified that, and you must have at least 500 seats. So you can't okay. just be at Madison Square Garden and say, "Well, I got more than 500 seats. I'm a Broadway house." No, you you can't just do that. You can have more than 500 seats, but that don't make you a Broadway theater. You need to be officially declared one. And in New York, there are 41 professional theaters. So right now, 29 theaters are lit up. They have shows, which means there are 12 theaters that are not. But a lot of those have shows that are coming in. So they're spoken for. Um, I can't give you the numbers right now as far as how many are spoken for or not and that sort of thing. Because there are small Broadway houses that are really only good for plays. And there are big Broadway houses that are really only good for big musicals. But right now, there are 29 theaters lit up. And the bad news is that 14 shows, almost half of those shows, are already announced a closing date or will probably be doing so soon. So that means of the shows running right now, almost half are going to be gone by the end of the year. A lot of them before the fall even. And that means if you just ignore whatever new shows are open up, you're down to 29, 19, you're down to 15 shows out of 41 theaters. Now you're talking a majority of Broadway is dark. So that would be really bad. That's not going to happen. But what's going on? What are shows are closing or likely to shows? Well, like the music man, has Hugh Jackman. Plaza Suite has Matthew Broderick and Sarah Jessica Parker. They're fine as long as no one has COVID. If someone has COVID and everybody's got COVID, oh my God, I know like 10 people who have COVID right now in my personal life. I do. So not good. But anyway, if they're out of the show, Drock's office drops. If they're in the show, it's fine, but they're going to be limited runs. I've heard they're not going to keep Music Man open after he leaves. So in December or January, that show will close. Plaza How could Suite. you keep that that open? I mean, you'd have to well, get Well, you like- could. The Music Man ran before. You have big names who can come in and do it. Unfortunately, the show is not that good. It's not a good revival. And so he's seen as the only reason the show is doing well at all. So recasting, getting someone new in the show when you think the revival isn't that good in the first place, because he ain't the problem. Unlike Benny Feldstein in the in Funny Girl, Hugh Jackman ain't the problem. It's just a flat, dull revival that's only going on the draw of Hugh Jackman. There are other big names who could step in. If Matthew Broderick wanted to go into the Music Man, he would be a draw. But their feeling is, we just got lucky. This one didn't really click. Let's just, you know, make back our money as much as we can and walk away rather than try to put someone new in it. That's the sense right now. But again, it's a show that's had big names. Robert Sean Leonard, Matthew Broderick. They've done the Music Man in the past. There are plenty of other big names, but Hugh Jackman is stands alone in terms of box office draw on Broadway. That's certainly true. So those shows will close when the stars leave. Billy Crystal's trying to make Mr. Sign the Lab a hit, but who knows? 
you know, here's the thing. Somebody told me recently that I look like Hugh Jackman. I'm not kidding. Well, they were kidding, even if you weren't. <laughs> okay. Okay. On that note, uh, do you want to run through all the, all, the, all the shows that are closing? There are 14 shows. Read them off. The Minutes. Girl from the North Country, which he thought had already closed. Hangmen. Tina, which is about Tina Turner. Paradise Square, which, yeah, I'm surprised it even opened. American Buffalo. Potus. Unlimited run. Right. Yeah, that was uh, like that closing. It's like, what do you mean? Right. That's like only Macbeth there? and others. Yeah. Closing. yeah. Uh, POTUS, which stands for president of the United States. Uh, Come from away, which has been on Broadway for eons. Dear Evan Hansen. Same thing. Company, which. Again, it's a shame because it's a very good revival. Yeah. Yeah. Mr. Saturday Night. That's the Billy Crystal. Uh, he the, might yeah. pull it off. That's that's. These are our closing are likely to close by the end of the year. Most of them are definitely closing, but yeah. one or two are likely to close. Macbeth, which uh, Daniel Craig, you know, James Bond is in it, but that's yes. a limited run. Right. Plaza Suite, which frankly was a limited run anyway, since it would start. And, uh, not good. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, and you mentioned the music man. That's right. That's 14 shows. At least 10 of them will absolutely be gone. One or two were no surprises because they were limited runs like Macbeth and American Buffalo. But it just tells you we're going to have a lot of empty theaters. So that's not good. And uh, none of those are going to get a reprise. You know, none mm -hmm. of those are going to maybe one, maybe Mr. Saturday Night. But other than that, they're probably all goners. So that's not good. Especially sad to hear about company and long runners like Come From Away and Dear Evan Hansen. Those long runners... You may get annoyed if you're a new musical and you want a house to free up, but having long runners is really the heart of Broadway. That's what keeps people working. But there is some good news. Did you watch the Tony Sarver Did you think MJ the musical did a good musical number? I was slightly unimpressed, but it has it's gaining momentum, still flowing off that Tony Award performance and looking like it may be able to turn into a word-of-mouth hit. Yeah, you know, that is certainly, uh, that, that performance, MJ the musical, uh, I mean, putting aside the history of everything that's going on mm -hmm. uh, with with Michael Jackson and his history, uh, that performance definitely made made you think, wow, that guy's really good at this. He can really do that moonwalk thingy that Michael Jackson used to do. By the uh, way, unintentional, unintentional illusion. History is the name of Michael Jackson's one of his greatest hit sets. That's true. Uh, <laughs> Six is but, also looking like it's gaining. It's it's been doing well from the start. It's cheap to run, so that is a, a a looks like it could be a long runner. Harry Potter made a switch. It was of course famously done in two parts. You had to see one show and then come back the next day to see another, or see one show in the afternoon and then part two in the evening. They have now mushed it together. They've cut like thirty five percent of the show down, and they made it one long performance, one show, so you do not have to commit to coming two different days to the theater. They felt like they'd already exhausted the audience for the show that was willing to make that commitment. And it's been playing a while. So it's already a big accomplishment. But they said, we think we can work even longer and we think the show can work creatively if we make these trims and reimagine the show. They've done that. They've mounted it. They've put it back on Broadway. It's probably cheaper to run and it's working. So that's good news. 12 shows on Broadway are at 95% capacity or greater. So that's good news. Of the 29 shows, almost half of them are, you know, doing very, very well. Though some of them, like Aladdin, uh, are having to deeply discount. 
some other worrying things. The Book of Mormon is way down. Beetlejuice is, I think it's going to be okay, but that looked like it was going to be a long runner, and now I'm worried about it. And Chicago is pretty well down, though I think it's not. it does not cost a lot to run. It's barely breaking even, I imagine, but it's been around so long. It's hard to imagine that show closing, though everything closes eventually, except, of course, Hamilton. Well, and the reason we talk about all this, again, just to, re- just to reiterate, so you said Dear, Dear Evan Hansen is closing. Guess what? It's coming to the U.S. I mean, it's coming to Los Angeles, San Francisco, San Diego. It's playing in London. And Funny Girl played in London before it came to America, by the so way, this revival go. of Funny Girl. Yeah, these, these shows all travel everywhere all the time. And is help on the way? Is help well, on, it's the way? Always on yes. the way? Don't you think? Don't you think? It There's is. Always Hope Springs yeah. Eternal on Broadway. Okay. There are lots of new shows coming up. It's not enough to make up for 14 shows disappearing. Some of them are going into houses that are dark waiting for them, but there are some big name shows. Tell me if you're interested. Almost Famous the Musical. Yeah. Uh, not really. You don't want to see him on the bus singing that Elton John song? What about Some Like It Hot? Classic movie comedy turned into a musical yet again. They're trying yet again. They've been trying before over the decades, but this is a new stab at turning Some Like It Hot into a musical. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you the one good thing about that. The movie Blonde by Andrew Dominic, that's based on the Joyce Carol Oates novel about Marilyn Monroe. And his new movie is going to be opening, I think, in theaters, but it's going to be on Netflix. Uh, the trailer was fantastic. I really like Andrew Dominic. He's a really talented director. I'm reading the book right now. I'm almost done with it. The book is terrific. The trailer is terrific. Marilyn Monroe is going to be a hot property, so that can only help some like it hot. What about the Neil Diamond musical, A Beautiful Noise, that's playing over on your side of the country? Yeah, actually it is. And uh, believe me, I've seen it. It's called The Jazz Singer. I saw that. <laughs> that was the remake of The Jazz Singer. It's a, no, it's same called A Beautiful Noise. I know, I know. Uh, I, I, I'd be interested see in seeing that. Yeah, the great songs, obviously. There's K-pop, a musical based on the K-pop industry and world. There's a revival of Bob Fosse's Dancing. Well, a great dance show. Camelot is getting a revival. 1776 is getting a revival. I'm not sure the timing's right for a wildly patriotic show. <laughs> um, yeah. There's a revival of, Andrew, of Into the Woods that played at the Encores. That's sans Neil Patrick Harris. So that's been revived a lot. So that's not going to be a big winner necessarily long-term, though I love the show. And there's Cinderella. Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cinderella closed in London. We talked about it before. They're reworking the book a bit. That's going to open on Broadway, and he is certainly a big name. And then there's the smaller show, Kimberly Akimbo, a very successful show off Broadway. Got great reviews, won big prizes. That's looking to do a strange loop. It wants to be the strange loop of 2022-2023, the show that turns off-Broadway success into a Broadway win. And uh, they're hoping to do that. I believe it won the Pulitzer Prize, didn't it? It's based on a play, turned into a movie, and I think it won uh, is it, Broadway. Is it, it, is it the, is it the board game based on the book, based on the musical, based on the it movie? It is based on a play. It's just a play by Lindsay Abair, David Lindsay Abair, turned into a musical. It's about a teenage girl uh, who ages rapidly. So it's like Benjamin Button, but in reverse because it's normal. <laughs> so it's a young girl who ages rapidly doing, doing this illness and it was turned. So she looks like an old woman, but she's a teenage girl and it's been turned into a musical, got rave reviews when it was off Broadway. And uh, now it's being turned into a Broadway musical. So that's one of those rolls of the dice, like almost famous where you say, by God, I believe in the power of Broadway. And there are plays revivals of death of a salesman with Wendell Pierce from the wire, the piano lesson with Samuel L. Jackson. I will absolutely see that 
please God, let me see that. And between Riverside and Crazy. So those are the shows coming up. Broadway ain't dead, but it's got tough times ahead. A lot of shows are going to be closing by the end of the year, and there are shows coming in, but not enough of them and not quickly enough. Uh, it's going to be tough times. So there's going to be a lot of theaters that are dark. Now, speaking of tough times and people who might not see these shows, there's a whole lot of people. You like, I don't know where you find some of these people. Uh, you have a lot of people who just, just, they're not around anymore. They died. They died. That's right. You're familiar with Mark Shields of PBS NewsHour. He died at the age of 85. You know him, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah, he's a political commentator. Fans of PBS NewsHour and their election coverage over the years will miss him. He began in politics, working on campaigns for Bobby Kennedy, Edmund Muskie, and others. And as far as I could tell, he was never working on a winning campaign. I didn't see one campaign where he won. So that's not good. But he said enough with politics. And he joined the Washington Post in 1979, did an opinion column starting in 1980. And ever since then, he's been a commentator on television. He was a panelist on NBC's Meet the Press. He helped launch CNN's The Capital Gang. And, of course, he offered analysis from the left on PBS for decades, opposite people on the right, like William Sapphire and, most recently, David Brooks. And if you don't watch PBS, watching Mark Shields and William Sapphire and others talk about politics, it's a polite, thoughtful, nuanced discussion. It barely exists anymore. <laughs> no, the exact opposite exists these days. Yeah. But now, okay, so also we, we have, a, a, you know, a comic book industry. Uh, oh, my God. No, dude, you're just skipping over one of the great actors of all time. I figured you would want to talk about him. Oh, you mean Jean-Louis Trignant? That's right. Yeah, he died at the age of 91. And, uh, you know, he did a, well, he did a lot of stage work that I know of. Uh, and, well, in films too, right? Oh, absolutely. He's a great filmmaker. Yeah, he did stage, he recorded poetry and audiobooks, but great film work for, for decades and decades, for 60 years, from the 60s right up to the 2010s until he retired. Just listing his films is enough. Yeah. A Man and a Woman, My Night at Maud's, The Conformist, he could have retired, uh, Z. Z, and our in-house film critic Aaron Rich loves Z. He thinks it's a great film. He did, uh, I... I out of the three colors, that he did red. That's right. Uh, one of the great films of all time by Kozlowski, the Three Colors Trilogy. He was in red. It's, a, it's beautiful. And maybe the one that most of our listeners will be familiar with, Amour. Ah, yeah, that was a heartbreaking, beautiful French film. So lucky to get to go to Cannes over the years. And I, I saw that movie, and it's just such a lovely film. And it was so good and got all the success in the world that it deserved about two older people facing their end of life. It's just a lovely film, a great capper to his career, though he's made some other movies after that, but then he retired. But 91 and a true legend, as is comic artist Tim Sale. He died uh, too young at the age of 66, though I'd say, uh, Jean-Louis died too young in 91. That's how I would feel. But there are a lot of legends in the comic industry who seem to be dying lately. Or maybe we're just paying more attention than ever before to this once maligned art form. In any case, we've lost another one with the death of Eisner award-winning artist Tim Sale. The Eisners refer to Will Eisner, one of the legends of comic books. He created The Spirit, among other stuff, uh, among other very important graphic novels and things like that. So Will Eisner, a legend back in the past. Tim Sale, a legend of today. He really caught fire in the 90s, did key work on a lot of the greats. He did a great run in Batman, a great run in Superman. Uh, he was often paired with his writing partner, Jeff Loeb. 
Tim Sale was a visual artist. Jeff Loeb was the writer. And all beyond that stuff they did at DC, they went to Marvel and where that dynamic duo created a series of takes on the early years of major heroes. And it's known as the color series. They did Hulk gray, Daredevil, yellow, Spider-Man, blue, and Captain America, white. So when you hear those names, if you love comic books or you hear the Batman miniseries, The Long Halloween, or Superman's For All Seasons, you're nodding your head in recognition because he was just a major artist. They also worked on the TV show Heroes together. And what's he known for? He's a great visual artist, a great partner. He's known for bringing a real emotional depth to his characters, and his page designs are really innovative, really cool, innovative stuff that he did. So he will definitely be missed. Now, what about hair? We just talked about, this is how we should have started, the musical hair. Oh, uh, James, you're right. Yeah, James Ratto, the co-creator of, the, of that rock musical, died at the age of 90. Uh, I guess he and his friend Jerome Rogni, they, uh, they had an idea for it. They co-wrote the book and lyrics while Galt McDermott wrote the music. That's right. And, no, and then no one cared. Yeah. No one cared. <laughs> they tried to do it all, but nobody cared. And then they rode the train with Joseph Papp, who was just starting the public theater. And they're like, hey, listen to our idea for a show. It goes, hey, that doesn't sound bad. Come to my office. And they said, hey, we will. And they went to his office and they played, the, uh, the guy played on the piano and they sang all the songs and told the story of the show. And he said, I'm going to do it. And they put it on. It may have been the first show or maybe the first musical or certainly one of the first shows done at the public theater. It was done before they even had their final space where they're at today. I think that opened up in 1971, but it was downtown, down there somewhere. One of the first shows, I couldn't quite clear up that information, but it was a big hit. They transferred to Broadway. The cast was nude at the end of act one, uh, four songs hit the charts in cover versions like, Age of Aquarius slash Let the Sunshine In, that big medley that ends the show. You know, this is the dawning of the Age of Aquarius, and then Let the Sunshine In. The Fifth Dimension did that and was a huge hit. Uh, it, it, it ran for like 1,600 performances in New York, even longer in London. He did stuff before and after that, but hair, obviously, is the thing that matters. Here's two notes. One, the public theater did not have a stake in the show when it transferred to Broadway. They didn't even think of it, really. It's like, they're not Broadway producers. It wasn't on their radar. And then the show was a big hit, and they thought, that was a mistake. <laughs> and they never made that mistake again. When they could, they would take a piece of the show. They did that with a chorus line, and that kept funding the public theater for decades. And the other thing about the show that's ironic is hair brought rock and roll to Broadway. Suddenly, rock Broadway was relevant again. For 50 years, Broadway spun out big hit songs. Cole Porter, Rodgers and Hammerstein, uh, hit albums, hit songs, stuff played on the radio. People would cover them. And then it fell apart with the rock and roll era. It wasn't happening anymore, certainly not remotely as much as it was. Hair seemed to change that. Rock and roll could be on Broadway, and of course it is today. Rock and roll and Broadway could produce hit songs that would make it on the radio. It just somehow never happened again. <laughs> it's been decades since rock and you know, there were some shows. Chorus Line had a hit song, sort of. Cats had a hit song. Dreamgirls had a hit song. Hamilton had hit albums. You know, Les Mis sold millions of copies. But in terms of creating songs that would transfer and hit the charts, that still doesn't happen today. So even though Hair was successful... Whatever magic they had, it just didn't it didn't continue somehow. Broadway is not important when it comes to the to the radio and probably never will be again. What about uh, speaking of radio? Uh, music is important to the radio. And when it gets played on the radio, sometimes, uh, you know, th somebody decides to measure it and then they decide to tell you whether that measurement means anything. And when they do that, they owe a debt of gratitude 
to Joel Whitburn, who died at the age of 82. Now, why is that? I'm the only one who cares about this. That's not true, but people in the music industry will uh, love and respect Joel Whitburn. Great guy. He was a pop chart expert. And if you geek out over pop stats like I do, then he was your best friend. He compiled book after book for Billboard, uh, the Billboard album chart book, the Hot 100 chart book. You could open that book and look up a song or an artist. And if any artist had ever charted on the Hot 100, there they were. Not only did it list every song of theirs that charted, they, if they're in there, they would then list songs that didn't chart that were really, I mean, it was just, it was like heaven. <laughs> and you got information there you couldn't get anywhere else. I would save up my pennies and buy like the hardcover version of the album guide because I knew I was going to wear it to pieces when the top 40 book came out. I'd get it in paperback and they get another one the next year or every three, four, five years they would refresh them. I would save my money. I had them lined up on my shelf. Uh, I just love these books. And and he did a great job. He basically did it because he wanted to see it. You know, he was geeking out. He was saving every chart every week. And he's just like, oh, my God, you know, this. Why has nobody done this? And then he did it. So uh, to give one example, the pop singles chart includes every single song that made the chart from 1955 up to the president, the president, the present. So if your <laughs> maybe, song, maybe the president, the chart, too, you never know Yeah, if the president had a hit song. Nowadays, a lot of that info is available online. You know what it is, but not in the same thoroughness or care, not in the same way. You can find information with these books that you can't do on Wikipedia and you can't do on other sites. So it's still hugely valuable. And he would cover streaks and make them newsworthy. Elton John's streak of having a hit song on the Hot 100 every year for 30 years. That's in his book. Madonna's amazing streak of top five hits still unbeaten to this day. You can thank Joel Whitburn for spotting those achievements and recording them. Here's what. He did his first book in 1970 without talking to Billboard. He just did it. And they're like, hey, come here. And then they talked and they worked out an <laughs> you arrangement. You can't do that. You can't. <laughs> Actually, you know what? Uh, why don't you He kind of could because it was public information at once it's printed, like box office charts. So it's an interesting debate. But they signed a deal. They gave him a 24-page contract. He signed it without reading because he wanted to get back to doing the next book. He wanted to do a country hits book. And he just went on and on. And 1970 is the year that Casey Kasem launched American Top 40. Now, he could have done that show without Joel Whitburn's books. You look at the weekly chart and go, number 40, number 39, easily done. But the stats that Casey Kasem peppered throughout his show, the information, the geeky little details, where somebody was born and all that stuff, they had that book next to them for decades. They used Joel Whitburn every week. So Casey Kasem owes him a debt. And everybody who loves uh, the charts and information and getting authoritative sources owes him a debt. His home famously has an underground vault claiming to include a copy in one form or another of every song that ever hit the Hot 100. What? 45s, CDs, uh, burnt CDs. He has copies of every single song that has ever hit the charts. In some cases, he was burning them onto a CD because they were only available digitally or he didn't need to buy the album or a 45 is not available anymore. But going back into the 50s and 60s, it's there. You know what? You know you know what's going to happen. What? Future episode of Hoarders is going to be. He's <laughs> no, going to be it's in order. It's organized. I hope it gets donated to a museum or something and gets. It's really hard to deal with that. There was a, a Times or another story about a guy who has like a million 78s. This guy has been a collector of 78s for decades. Jack White has visited him. Documentaries have been made about this guy. And he's, he's getting older and older. And he doesn't want to hear anybody talking to him about, well, what do you want to do? I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> so so I don't know if any any uh, any thoughts or planning were made, but I hope 
the archive is preserved and somehow presented and saved somewhere. Well, speaking of being preserved and saved somewhere, we're we're preserved and saved somewhere online on into the etherwebs, interwebs, internet, what whatever they call that, the cloud. The cloud. We are found every week right here uh in in our home on whether it's whether it's iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast Store, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, anywhere they give podcasts away for free, you can usually find us and download us. And we love it when you rate and review us on all of those podcast aggregators that allow you to do so. Uh, links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode, as well as those ways to subscribe to us, can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. And that's where you'll find those ways to contact us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. Or you can, I don't know, follow us on Twitter at showbizsandbox is our handle. Or like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox is where our page is. Again, all that information on our website, showbizsandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group, MGMT. They can be found on their own website, who is MGMT.com. Michael Gilt is a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week it's Aquarius.com. Why? Because James Ratto, I noticed on his, his bio, he is an Aquarius. So go figure. He's like, it's the dawning of the age of Aquarius. Well, sure, that was your, what about me? I'm a Taurus. Oh well, <laughs> and Taurus Aquarius. No, you need you yeah, need more you need more syllables. Doesn't, doesn't quite work, does it? <laughs> no, but uh, you know what? If you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry on that uh, probably owned website, why not head on it's, over to it's Michael? Not, it's not calling up anything, isn't that weird? Aquarius.com. Huh? You know, MichaelGiltz.com is where you can find some of Michael's work. Some of my work can be found on CelluloidJunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. <laughs> Oh, wait, wait, wait. Don't go away, Sperling. I was going to say welcome back, but the January 6th committee, breaking news, the January 6th committee has set a surprise hearing for Tuesday. The broadcast nets are going to air it live. Is it in prime time or something? No, it can't be, but my God. Wait, wait you're dropping- talking about the... They're talking about the congressional committee, committee, right? They're dropping a surprise episode. Like, like, do they think they're Beyonce? What's going on here? <laughs>